Hello, 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 and welcome to the Cells and Circuits podcast. I am your host, Chibeze Anacor, and on this episode, we'll be talking about Disney's plans for its adult animation. Then after that, we'll get into the Steam Deck and what it means for handheld gaming consoles. And then after that, we'll get into the highlights from the Google Pixel 6 launch event. And without further ado, let's jump right into it. Alright, so first up, let's talk about Disney's plans for its adult animation. So, for those of you who don't know, Disney went from having no presence in comedic adult animation to being one of biggest players in that space thanks to the 21st century fox acquisition and so now disney owns shows like the simpsons family guy bob's burgers american dad king of the hill futurama archer and others so that leads me to day that many animation fans in the U.S. probably know. And that's September 18th, 2021, which was a Saturday. That was the day that Adult Swim aired its final rerun of Family Guy, ending an 18-plus year run on the network and that was probably one of the most notable syndication deals of all time but of course now the family guy is owned by disney and disney doesn't tend to share their properties with others naturally family guy left Adult Swim and is now on Disney's own networks. In fact, just two days later, on September 20th, then FXX, which is now owned by Disney, thanks to that aforementioned acquisition, got the rights to the first 15 seasons of Family Guy, which were previously held by Adult Swim and TBS, along with King of the Hill and The Cleveland Show. And so, FX and Freeform, which are also Disney Networks, have also been airing reruns of Family Guy as well, including the older seasons. And Freeform has been airing The Simpsons alongside FXX, in a rerun form since 2019. And Futurama will be joining FXX on November 15th of this year. And FXX will get older seasons of Bob's Burgers starting in 2023 or around then. And then all of those previously mentioned shows are streamable on Hulu in the U.S. and Star internationally, or Disney Plus Star, 
depending on where you were in the world. And so with FXX having all of these animated series, or at least having the rights to air all of these animated series, along with original programming like Archer and the upcoming animated series Little Demon that's being produced for FXX. That is pretty much making FXX the definitive home on cable, at least, for Disney's most popular adult animation. I mean, excluding American Dad, of course, which is still premiering on TBS and still airs its reruns on Adult Swift. And Disney basically confirmed this. And I would pull up the article, which says, We are bearing the absolute ultimate collection of animated adult comedies on cable television, said Chuck Saffler, head of business operations for ABC, Freeform, FX Networks, and acquisitions in Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution's Networks Division. This lineup is comedy gold that will provide FXX viewers with belly laugh after belly laugh. And I quote, and there you have it. Disney basically confirmed that FXX is going to be the whole, on cable at least, of its adult animation. And that makes sense. Now that Disney owns a reputable adult animation studio, naturally it would want to have all of their adult animation in one place. And so FXX is the home of Disney's adult animation on cable, and Hulu is the equivalent of that. And streaming. So, okay, we covered FXX, but Disney owns more than FXX. They own Freeform and ABC as well, which all show adult-oriented programming. So, what are Freeform's plans for adult animation? Well, Freeform used to have two series in development called Betches and Woman World, and they were in development in 2019, but they eventually, or they eventually didn't, or never saw the light of day. And so Freeform is still interested in producing adult animation, though, getting a new president within the past two years. I forget which year that Tara Duncan became president, but regardless, Tara Duncan had actually said that Freeform is trying to get back into developing adult animation. She says that it's a genre that does well with our core demo. He also feel with our lens being a bit more female forward 
we have an opportunity to expand the offering from what's currently out there in the animation landscape by having more women-driven stories at the forefront and having more inclusivity driving the point of animation. And so, there you have it. Freeform is very much interested in producing adult animation. And, of course, with Freeform being part of Disney and also one of the biggest animation studios for adult animation, 20th television animation being for also being part of Disney. I mean, I think you could start to see how Freeform can utilize those connections and, and develop more adult animated series and, you know, as Tara Duncan said in the article, Freeform could have more female-focused adult animation. They could also have more LGBTQ-focused adult animation. So there's that as well. But, of course, we'll have to wait and see what Freeform's plans are. And then... Last but not least, what about ABC? Because ABC is not, or ABC hasn't had the best track record in terms of adult animation. In fact, they haven't even produced any adult animation in the previous decade. So, ABC currently has two adult animated series in production, both from 20th television animation. And what's funny about 20th TVA is that 20th television animation used to be a first party studio for ABC's rival network Fox. But since Disney bought out most of 21st Century Fox and got 20th Television Animation along with it. Now, 20th TVA is basically going to be a sister studio to ABC rather than Fox. And, and now shows like The Simpsons and Family Guy are third-party shows to Fox rather than first-party shows, which they were before the Disney acquisition. So I think that's just funny. But anyway, back to the subject. So ABC currently has two adult anime, animated series in production. One of them is How to Be Black, which is from 20th TPA, and that'll be ABC's first attempt at animation since 2009 with The Good Family, which didn't do well and only lasted one season. And then the second adult animated series that ABC is producing is The Hobblepots, which is also from 20th TVA, but with help from Rooster Teeth, 
which is also interesting because currently at the time of this recording, Rooster Teeth is owned by Warner Media. So who had Disney and Warner Media teaming up to produce an adult animated series as part of their 2021 bingo card? Stop lying. No, man. Anyway, if both of these series are successful, then it would be a pretty safe bet that their reruns will probably show up on FXX and Hulu, of course, and possibly Freeform as well. And that would pretty much complete both series' vertical integration into the Disney ecosystem. And that's what the end goal of Disney getting back all of their adult animation is, is to vertically integrate all of them into the Disney ecosystem. I mean, Family Guy, with the exception of the premieres, is fully integrated into the Disney ecosystem. I'm saying with The Simpsons and well, I shouldn't say Bob's Burgers because seasons one through eight or one through nine are still airing on TBS and Adult Swim for reruns. And then, of course, the premieres are airing on Fox, which is not owned by Disney. So, but yeah, I mean, Family Guy and The Simpsons are, for the most part, integrated into the Disney ecosystem outside of premieres. But anyway... That's what I was trying to get to, was that Disney's end goal here is to just integrate as much of its content as possible into its own ecosystem. And adult animation is no different. But that about wraps it up for this segment. Let me know what you think of Disney's plans for adult animation are. And as always, or I should say, let me know what you think on social media or on Discord, and we can continue the conversation there. But that's going to do it for this segment. And thanks for listening. I'll see you in the next one right after these messages. Up next, we'll be getting into the Steam Deck and what it means for handheld gaming consoles. Then after that, we'll get into the highlights from the Google Pixel 6 launch event. The Cells and Circuits podcast will be right back. All right, welcome back. And now it's time to talk about the Steam Deck and what it means for handheld gaming consoles. So for those of you who don't know, Valve announced the Steam Deck the same day that pre-orders for the Nintendo Switch OLED model went live. And I think that was a pretty, it was a pretty cheeky move by Valve, but it was also very genius. And... It was definitely targeted in a way to take away some attention from the Nintendo Switch OLED model. And it worked because the OLED model 
wasn't the Switch Pro that I and many others had wanted, but the or I mean, Steam Deck is definitely a lot more powerful based on the specs of it. But of course, we'll have to test that out when it gets here. So be sure to be subscribed to the Cells and Surfeits podcast or follow the show in your favorite podcast platform or on social media or both if you want to be uh, aware of where that goes live. But anyway, I think that the Steam Deck is a pretty interesting little handheld console PC hybrid that allows its users to play their entire Steam library on the go in handheld mode or docked to an external display, much like the Nintendo Switch is for Nintendo Switch games. And Steam Deck, like I said, is more powerful than it than the Nintendo Switch, but an interesting thing about it is it also runs SteamOS, which is based on Linux. And for those of you who don't know, most PC games are made for Windows, so it'll be interesting to see how each of these PC games runs on Steam Deck, because They'll have to use Proton, which is a compatibility layer that runs in Linux that translates DirectX code into Vulkan, which is what Linux uses in order to run Linux PC games. So, yeah, and DirectX, I don't think, is on Linux, so it's Windows exclusive, so... They have to translate that in real time, which could potentially for some titles mean a performance hit. But again, we'll see. We'll see how that affects games once we get a Steam Deck here and testing it out. But, but one interesting thing about or another interesting thing about this Steam Deck is that Valve is making it very clear that users can, for it's a PC basically, and that users can do whatever they want with it. And so, if you wanted, you could even wipe Steam OS and install Windows if you want on the Steam Deck. I don't know why you would do that. Maybe you want to play some games that may not run very well on Linux, or maybe there's a certain service that runs only on Windows, like, say, PS Now or something like that, that you just can't get on, on Linux. So, I mean, that's... Earth. I guess both of those would be valid reasons to install Windows. Even though I wouldn't recommend doing that, nor would I do it myself. I mean, you know, it's an option. And the Steam Deck is also compatible with USB-C hubs for docking, 
to external displays and charging and stuff like that could also, you know, connect a keyboard and mouse, pretty much anything that a PC could do. And so now let's get into the pricing. So the Steam Deck starts at 399 US dollars for the 64 gigabyte model, which that one in particular uses EMMC storage, which is slower than an SSD, which the other models have, but we'll get to that in a second. And so it's 529 US dollars for the 256 gigabyte model, which is an NVMe SSD, and then $649 for the 512 gigabyte model, which is also an NVMe SSD. So faster storage, meaning less load time or faster load times and stuff like that. So, and also if you're trying to use, or if you're trying to wipe Steam OS and install Windows on the Steam Deck. Again, I don't know why you would do that, but nor what I recommend doing that, but you know, to each their own. I would say yeah, a 64 gigabyte model is pretty much out of the question because that that would just not be a good experience from Windows. I think the OS itself would probably eat up all of the storage. So you would have to get an SD card to expand the storage, which thankfully the Steam Deck has an S for a micro SD card slot for you to expand the storage. So you would have to run all of your games through an SD card, which is slower than an SSD, but, or which means you'll be waiting longer or loading screens will be longer and stuff like that. So yeah, just a recommendation. If you wanted to install windows, just don't get the 64 gigabyte model. And what's interesting about the pricing is that the steam deck is way cheaper than a windows based handheld gaming PCs like the INEO or the 1X player or the GPD wing devices because Valve owns Steam, the PC uh, game store. And so it can sell those Steam decks at a loss and it makes up for that loss in software sales, which Valve currently takes 30% of. So if you're a developer on Steam or publisher on Steam, then you get 70% of all of the sales of your game on Steam, while Valve takes the other 30%. So just, so just to let you know, that's why the Steam Deck is so cheap compared to its Windows counterparts. And plus also since the Steam Deck runs Linux, which is free, they don't have to pay Microsoft for Windows licenses, 
which also bumps up the cost of, of some of these Windows-based handhelds like the INEO, the One X Player, and all those other ones. But what does the Steam Deck mean for handhelds? Because the Steam Deck, just based on the brand association alone with Valve, and Valve is making it itself, the Steam Deck is going to potentially be one of the most popular handheld gameplay PCs ever. So I think it's probably going to be a Halo device for all of the other handheld gaming PCs that there are. And so what I think that the Steam Deck means for handhelds is that there is a market for people who want to take PC games on the go. And of course, you can natively take PC games on the go, but there are also cloud gaming services that allow you to do that as well. Like I wouldn't, or I definitely wouldn't try to run something like a Cyberpunk 2077 natively on the Steam Deck. I would use a cloud gaming service like Google Stadia or NVIDIA GeForce Now in order to play that game. But but that's the beauty of the gaming landscape right now. There are so many options. And I think that's awesome that the Steam Deck can take advantage of both native PC gaming as well as cloud gaming. So you could pretty much take your games wherever you want. So I think that's awesome. Another thing that the Steam Deck means for handhelds is that there are definitely going to be more handhelds for specific needs. For example, mobile gaming, there are definitely going to be handhelds for that in the future and cloud gaming as well and maybe other types of gaming and models like this are already in the works for example the iron odin is going to be coming out very soon and full disclosure i actually backed the iron odin project on indiegogo so i will be getting one of those so stay tuned for that coverage once that goes live, but also Lenovo, a very reputable PC maker and smartphone maker too, and other devices as well. They're going to be getting into the handheld gaming console market. So yeah, I mean, this, this space is definitely going to be expanding a lot thanks to the Steam Deck. And so another thing that the Steam Deck means for handhelds is that, you know, maybe, maybe it might influence Nintendo to make a more powerful version of the Switch that benefits people who would like to play in docked mode more often because, I mean, let's face it, Nintendo has three models of the Switch right now. The Switch Lite, the regular Switch, and the Switch OLED model that recently released. 
all three of those models of the Switch benefit people who like to play in handheld mode more than people who like to play in docked mode. Because I believe that the, at least for the regular Switch and the OLED model, because the Switch Lite can't dock to an external display at all, but the display can top out at 1080p once you dock the Switch to an external display. Whereas 4K, which is, you know, 3840 by 2160, I believe is the resolution to that. That is starting to become the norm, especially with consoles like the PS5 and the Xbox Series X and S. Like 4K is starting to become the norm, and so Nintendo is already behind on that. So I think it would, for if the Steam Deck does well, it may, it may influence Nintendo to try and keep up. And I think that's awesome because we all benefit from that. And competition is a good thing. Even though the Steam Deck may not be a direct competitor to the Nintendo Switch, I don't think Nintendo isn't watching what Valve is doing right now with the Steam Deck. So all in all, I think that the Steam Deck is definitely going to be good for the gaming industry. But let me know what you think of the Steam Deck and what it means for handheld gaming consoles. Are you going to be getting a Steam Deck? What will you be using it for? Will you be using it for native PC gaming? Will you be using it for cloud gaming? Or will you be using it for emulation? Let me know. Let me know on social media or on Discord, and we can continue the conversation there. But that's going to do it for this topic, and I'll catch you in the next one after these messages. Up next, we'll be getting into the highlights from the Google Pixel 6 launch event. The Cells and Circuits podcast will be right back. All right. So last, we're going to talk about the highlights from the Google Pixel 6 launch event. So for those of you who don't know, Google just recently released their newest Pixel device the Google Pixel 6, and I watched the watch event live, and I have some thoughts. So, but first, let's go over most of the things that Google had revealed at the watch event. So let's start with the design. There are five unique two-tone colors to the Pixel 6 and Pixel 6 Pro. There are two models this year, unlike last year, uh, where there was only one. But the Pixel 6 has sort of seafoam and kind of coral, and then the Pixel 6 Pro has cloudy white and sort of sunny. So all four of those are unique to each model of the Pixel, whereas they both share one color, which is 
stormy black. And then there's a camera bar at the back that spans the entire width of the phone if you're holding it vertically, which most people do. So it won't wobble on a table. If you're laying it flat, it'll just, or it'll just be laying on incline if you don't have a case on it. But for me, I'm going to put a case on it anyway. In fact, I've already ordered like three cases, two of which are already here and one will be coming soon. So now I just gotta get the phone, but we'll get to that in a bit. And so then let's talk about the software. The software, it's running Android 12 out of the box and it's the first phone to do so as most pixels usually are. And this year with Android 12, it's getting the biggest design overhaul that Android has gotten in years, which is called the Material U design language. And what it does is it basically picks out colors from the background that you set for your phone and it'll choose a primary color and an accent color. And so at each, or I should say some of the Google apps that are pre-installed on the Pixel 6 and 6 Pro will just have those primary and accent colors as themes in the apps. So like, for example, the phone app or the Gmail app or Google messages, I believe photos also has it. So there are a lot of first party Google apps that have the material you theming in them. And I think that's pretty awesome. It definitely makes your phone feel more like your own. And that's the whole idea is that they want the phone or since it's the most personal device they have to be more of a reflection of you, hence the name of the design language material you. So I think that's pretty awesome. I have Android 12 on my pixel five and I'm really enjoying it. So probably once as I <laughs> drop my phone, I will definitely enjoy it on the pixel six pro once I get it, but let's move on to the specs, which most of which I'm not really going to go over. I mean, you could probably find those specs on GSM arena or something like that, or you could find it on Google's website. I'll link both of those below for in the description of this episode. But this year, Google is using its own tensor processor, which I talked about in the previous episode. So this is the device that it's going to debut on. And it's or the tensor chip basically enables a lot of camera features and it enables more AI features that other off the shelf chips 
wouldn't be able to give. Previously, Google was using Qualcomm processors that other manufacturers use, but now it's switched to its own tensor processor. So it can do all of the Google-y things that you would expect it to do. And yeah, so... So we'll talk about the features that Tensor enables later on, but some key things that I want to point out, which are differences between the two models, Pixel 6 and 6 Pro. Pixel 6, the screen size is 6.4 inches at the 6 Pro screen is 6.7 inches diagonally. So both of these are big phones. So. There's no Pixel 6 Mini or anything like that. Though, I do think Google should probably consider making one maybe next year or something like that. As far as screen refresh rates go, the Pixel 6 regular is 90 hertz, whereas the Pixel 6 Pro is an LTPO display that maxes out at 120 hertz but can ramp all the way down to 10 hertz, depending on what you're doing, and that will save battery life on the Pro model. I don't know if the 6 has an LTPO display as well. It may not. It may just stay at 90 hertz all the time, which could impact battery life. But speaking of battery life, let's go into the battery sizes. The regular Pixel 6 has a 4,614 milliamp hour battery, while the 6 Pro has a 5,003 milliamp hour battery, which weird numbers, but, but whatever. I mean, just know that the 6 Pro, because it's a bigger device overall, it has a bigger battery. And then also, on um, for the cameras, the Pixel 6 has two lenses, a main and an ultra-wide. And then the Pixel 6 Pro has a main a telephoto lens and then an ultra-wide. So, so, speaking of which, I guess price should also be a spec. The Pixel 6 starts at $599 while the Pixel 6 Pro starts at $899. So for that extra $300 for the Pro, you get a telephoto lens, bigger battery, a faster refresh rate screen, a bigger screen, and just And yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty much what you get out of Pixel 6 Pro. So whether you think that's worth it to you, it's totally up to you. For me, I think that's definitely worth it for me. So I will be getting the Pixel 6 Pro because I intend to keep that phone for at least two years, but that's just me. Anyway, now on to the camera features. So one of the things that got the tensor processor enables is, for at least according to Google, is Magic Eraser, which if you don't know what that is, it removes people and things you don't want 
from the photos that you take. So say if you were on the beach and then someone's walking behind you and you take the photo, excuse me, and later you just were like, man, I wish these people were in the background of the photo. Well, magic eraser allows you to do that. And that is for right now, exclusive to the pixel six and six pro because of that tensor processor. Another thing that the tensor processor enables is real tone, which makes camera improvements for people with darker skin tones, which is good for me because I, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but I'm a black man and I have someone with a darker skin tone. So that should be pretty awesome. And I'll definitely test that out, but yeah, I really am glad that real tone exists because cameras definitely tend to favor people with lighter skin or yeah, people with lighter skin tones. And so it's nice to be able to have a camera that could show how I truly am or how I truly look like. So I think that's awesome. Another feature that the tensor chip enables is face unblur. So say if you're, or say if you're trying to take a photo of like a kid and you know, kids run around, or maybe you're trying to take a photo of a pet and pet just won't stay still and take the photo and it's just blurry because that kid or pet is moving too much. Well, the pixel will take a long exposure, exposure shot, excuse me, and it will merge, it will merge those shots where the face is not blurry into the photo, into the blurry photo and unblur the face. So I think that that should be a pretty awesome thing to test. See if that lives up to the claims. And then the tensor chip also enables features like on device dictation, which is important if you're voice typing or if you're using command or I mean, if you're speaking commands to Google assistant. But another thing that's good for is live translate. So during the event. Google had demoed that, uh, with Marie Kondo and I think that was pretty awesome. It was a pretty neat demo. And so, though, I don't know how Google is going to advertise, you know, just like like translations or dictations being like maybe a hack second for just a second faster. I don't know, but, but we'll see as time goes on because Google is definitely putting its full weight behind these phones and they're going to be advertising the holy fuck out of them. So be prepared to see quite a few of them on billboards and stuff like that 
and even be prepared to see maybe some of your friends carrying around a Pixel 6 or a Pixel 6 Pro. I know I will be getting a Pixel 6 Pro once they get back in stock because these have been selling like hotcakes. So, so wish me luck in getting the Pixel 6 Pro and be sure to subscribe or follow the Selves and Circuits podcast to get my coverage on the Pixel 6 Pro once it arrives here so I can tell you all about it from my experience. But yeah, these are basically the highlights of the Pixel 6 launch event. So let me know what you thought of the Pixel 6 launch event. Did you like it? Did you hate it? Did you think they could have done more with it? Let me know on social media or on Discord and we can continue the conversation there. But that's going to wrap it up for this topic and this episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to the Cells and Circuits podcast, the place for tunes, tech, and where they intersect. Let me know what you think of any of the topics discussed on social media or on Discord via the flow page link in the show notes. If you like this content, share it on social media and give it a review to help more people find it. If you want to see even more content just like this, consider supporting Cells and Circuits on Coffee or visiting the Cells and Circuits shop. The Cells and Circuits podcast was written, produced, and edited by me, Chibeze Anacor. Our intro, outro, and transition music was made by Tiffy3. That'll do it for this episode. So until next time, I'm Chibeze signing off.